I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people of the Enora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. When people sit down with an open mind and they taste the wines, most people have just been blown away. And they just have been like, wow, I didn't know Australia was doing this. And these are, you know, incredibly impressive wines. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it's always really, I think that's my favorite part about this job so far is when we have those sorts of meetings with people who are just like totally on board, totally get it, really excited and want to help us push Australia as a category. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Jane Lopes is a Californian-born sommelier, author, and importer. You may know Jane from her days working the floors at the likes of Eleven Madison Park or here in Melbourne at Attica. Jane recently made Waves Down Under, releasing her first book vignette, and today she is co-founder of Australian wine imports company, Legend. As one of the most talented, gracious, and eloquent wine personalities I've had the pleasure to meet, it's with great excitement that I welcome Jane onto the podcast. Hi, Jane. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. What a, what a nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Very deserving. Nashville of all places. How have you found yourself in Nashville? Uh, so I lived here about 10 years ago. I helped open a restaurant called The Catbird Seat in 2011. And so when, and then I moved to New York where um, my now husband, John and I met, and then we moved to Australia. And so when we came back and we, you know, kind of um, with our company and with traveling a lot, we could really be based anywhere. We, you know, we wanted to be somewhere that was central and, you know, had a good airport and was fun, but also was, you know, a little bit more chill and affordable than like LA or New York. So, um, you know, cause I had lived here before I knew it and had some friends here and it kind of checked all the boxes. And so we, we moved to Nashville. Amazing. Well, it's been an incredibly busy few years for you. Um, I think we'll get to most of it, but first, can you just take, especially the, the people tuning in, can you take us back to where your journey in wine all began? Yeah. So <clears throat> uh, it began in Chicago. Uh, I went to the University of Chicago. I, um, I studied Renaissance literature <laughs> and I had planned to kind of go back into academia, get get a PhD, and but I, I didn't submit my applications my senior year because I wanted to take a year off. <clears throat> so I just needed a job, and I'd um, I'd been I'd applied to work in the admissions department at University of Chicago and didn't get that job and was devastated and just kind of you know, surfing the internet, uh, classifieds, looking for something. And I saw a posting to work at a wine shop and, you know, I was 21 at the time, which is the, you know, <laughs> just barely legally drinking in, in the U S and I did not know much about wine. I liked wine. I, I just thought, Hey, that'd be a fun, fun way to spend a year. So I applied and I, you know, kind of spent the weekend before my interview reading wine for dummies and, um, I still knew very, very little when they interviewed me, but they saw something in me and uh, offered me a job. And, um, you know, within a few months, I I knew I wasn't going to turn in those grad school applications. I just felt like this was felt like a great fit. And it was academic, but it was also fun and experiential and tied into food and people and being social and just kind of really, um, really hit a lot of the aspects of my personality. Uh, so I just stayed on, on that path. 
Good for you. How did that conversation go with your with your loved ones about not going back and finishing at university? Well, I guess it wasn't, I'd, I'd finished, I'd graduated my undergrad degree. So it was just not kind of going and seeking other degrees. And, you know, my, my, my parents are just about the most wonderful uh, <laughs> understanding parents you could wish for, especially uh, they're both lawyers. So they kind of did a, a much more straightforward sort of academic track and you know, my sister is a, a theater director and I went into wine and they couldn't have been more supportive. They just wanted the two of us to find find the things that made us happy and, and pursue them. So, um, you know, I think there was a little like, uh, oh, wine. OK. But, you know, I think when people saw uh, how happy it made me and how, you know, what an interesting field it truly is, I think no one everyone was on board. <laughs> Oh, bless their hearts to have wonderful, supportive parents like that. That is just a total gift. So good on them and shout out to them. <laughs> um, tell, do, was there a time that you remember when you kind of really, I often say when we get into wine and we f- wholeheartedly get into it, that you realize at some point there's this moment where you're like, I am so far down this rabbit hole of wine. Like I'm so immersed and I'm so involved in it. Do you remember a moment like that or a time where you were just completely, you know, absorbed and it kind of happened quite quickly? Um, yeah, you know, I remember kind of, um, the early days working at Lush, which is the name of the wine shop I was working at. And, you know, I, I I don't know if you felt the same way, but I remember when I was starting off in wine, I was very intimidated and just felt like, you know, every time I studied, I just learned how much I don't, I didn't know, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I remember sort of one of those early days sitting down at my desk and studying and just being like, I, I don't want to stop doing this until... I feel like I have a grasp on this world and you know, the good and bad news is like, you can never learn everything there is to learn. So, so I'll never feel like I really have a grasp on this world. So it'll always, it'll be a lifelong pursuit. But, um, you know, I remember that in terms of like an academic moment. And then, you know, I think people talk about their aha moment with a wine where you really realize what wine can do. And it was, I'd been invited to like a friend who worked in consulting. His boss was having a party and um, was known for like opening great bottles of wine. And the first wine of the night was a 1985. um, I think it was 85. (laughs) uh, Louis Latour, kind of just a negotiant uh, Burgundy producer, but a Chevalier Montrachet. And it was, uh, it was just like, I was like, oh, I had no idea wine could do this. Like, what is going on in this glass? It is like absolutely just like breathtaking and complex. And like, how is this possible? And so that was a- another moment where I was just like, I could spend my life dedicated to this beverage <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and we are also glad that you did. <laughs> Um, you've worked at some incredible venues, the Violet Hour, 11 Madison Park, before you made your way um, over to Australia. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what each of those kind of venues kind of taught you or something that, that kind of sticks out from working at those venues? Absolutely. Um, Violet Hour was uh, was a huge learning curve. I had never I'd never bartended before and I kind of just like, 
<laughs> I feel like the hubris only like a 21, 22 year old can have. I just sort of like strolled up there and was like, I want to work here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they gave me a chance and, um, I, it was, it was really kind of difficult, the hours and the physicality of the job in a, in a way I hadn't experienced before. So that was kind of a big, um, learning curve, you know, and something that everyone who works in a restaurant sort of faces that curve at some point. Um, you know, Violet Hour really, for me was uh, what I really remember most is kind of honing my palate. Um, you know, I think when you work in wine, you're sort of pre presented with this finished product. And the cool thing about working in cocktails was that you're sort of, it's not a, it's not a finished product and you're the one who's sort of creating the balance. Even if you're working from a recipe, you're always creating balance on the spot. And, you know, sometimes the lemon juice might be a little tartar that day. And so it's, it's always like being able, it was, it was about trusting my palate and be able to taste a cocktail. You know, we'd straw, straw taste all the cocktails going out and be able to taste it and be like, ah, uh, Hmm, that's missing something. And maybe it's something as like big as like, Oh, I forgot to put this ingredient in. And sometimes it's as small as like, yeah, it's just a bit too tart. I need another splash of simple syrup or whatever it, whatever it was. So that to me was a huge takeaway from that job of really learning to, um, to trust my own palate, which has been incredibly helpful in the wine profession. Um, so that was Violet Hour. Um, I came into wine through retail, through bartending. So, you know, a lot of people sort of come into wine through restaurants like my husband, John did. And so he, you know, he had worked every job in a restaurant and really understood restaurants in a way that I didn't. And so EMP was my first really real job that I was kind of doing much more than just wine service. And certainly there was plenty to do with wine service to keep me busy, but it was, you know, it was really, you had to be kind of a full, a full team player. And I was running food and I was stepping in to kind of to take orders when I needed to for the captains and, uh, you know, clearing plates and helping flip tables and just kind of keeping, keeping your section moving. So that was, um, I learned a ton there. Certainly I learned a lot about wine and, got to taste a lot of really amazing wine, serve a lot of amazing wine. Um, I think that's an education that's really hard, hard to attain in this industry. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, but I think, you know, what I learned most at 11 Madison Park is like, there are so many things that go into what makes a good restaurant experience for a guest. And Beverages are a part of that, you know, for some guests, it's a large part for some other guests, it's a smaller part, but it, um, it, you like we, as wine professionals need to think about the holistic experience, um, for guests in our restaurant. And it can never just be about, oh, I've got to get this bottle at the perfect serving temperature, even when they're sitting there with, you know, empty water glasses on their table or a table that has been crumbed or something like that, you know, that it really has to be all of those things working in harmony to create, to create a great experience. Um, and then Attica, Attica, um, you know, might be my favorite lesson of all. I, um, you know, when I had started, Ben Shuri had taken over ownership of the restaurant relatively recently, and he really wanted to 
cut down on staff hours, especially the kitchen team. And, um, you know, so he kind of took a survey of all the dishes on the menu and what was the most time consuming dishes and, you know, the dishes that they couldn't make work with the amount of hours they were willing to assign to, to the chefs, they, they cut, they replaced on the menu, you know? And I thought that was like such an amazing uh, attitude where it wasn't like, you know, I think a lot of restaurants at that level, it's kind of this like whatever it takes sort of mentality. And Ben's attitude was more, you know, he was creating an experience for the guests, but he was also creating a livelihood and an experience for his staff. And that was equally as important to him. And he wasn't going to sacrifice one for the other. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, I don't think any guest would have missed that one dish. And when you have a team that's, you know, well rested and happy uh, serving the f preparing and serving the food, I think it makes a huge difference. And so that was, you know, I thought that was such a remarkable thing. Um, and it just made me so proud to work at that restaurant. I mean, and, and especially today, we, you know, it has to be viable, a restaurant. And a lot of the time, these margins are so slim and it makes it so difficult to run restaurants. So that foresight, that that kind of jumping ahead of the gun and thinking about how do we make this work for everyone is is you know, you know, a tribute to him. That's fantastic. And and we really all should be doing that in every restaurant at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And every, I mean, I think in like every aspect of our lives too, I think we have to look at like, what's, what's worth our time, what's worth our energy, what's draining us, what's like, you know, giving us life and, and really balance those things. Cause I feel like too often we, are putting a lot of time, energy, money, whatever into things that are not, um, are not worth it. Yeah. And just not conducive. I, I totally agree with you. And I think for a long time, we've been saying that this hospitality needs to change in a way that, that can make it a lifelong career for everybody. And, um, but, you know, we really need to put our money where our mouth is now because that's the time we're forced to do it now. So, um, you know, restaurants are a wonderful, wonderful part of culture and we want them to keep thriving, but um, they have to make sense too. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. What was the major differences you noticed when you first came to Australia about the role of sommeliers uh, versus the States and, and here in Australia? Um, I mean, honestly, I, I think it's probably more restaurant to restaurant than it is US versus uh, Australia. You know, I think you work somewhere like New York and there are a lot of places that have, you know, dedicated sommelier positions where you really do nothing but help people with wine and make sure wine service is good and that's it. And then, you know, somewhere like 11 Madison Park, as I said, I was really sort of involved in all aspects of service, but wine was my primary function. And there was certainly on most nights, plenty of wine service to, to keep you really busy. Um, you know, Attica and I, you know, I guess one generalization you can kind of make about Australia is that, you know, labor is more expensive. And so as a result, I think you do have to be a little bit more uh, creative with how you're using labor because it's not just someone taking a piece of a tip pool. It's someone who has, you know, is getting a, a pretty sizable hourly rate. So I think I think in all all restaurant well certainly Attica and, and other restaurants I've heard about and experienced it seems like you know it kind of does have to be all hands on deck and there's no such thing as like that's not my job and you know you kind of have to run with 
the leanest team possible to make it, you know, to make it financially viable. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that's kind of, I think in terms of how I think proprietors are, are, um, approaching their business, that's probably the, the main difference. Um, but I think, uh, I think in general, it's a positive result in Australia. Cause I think at the end of the day, you want everyone to be sort of a well-rounded restaurant professional and not sort of this, um, you know, very specialized. Like I worked in restaurants where like, I didn't really even know the food that well. And that was, you know, reflected poorly on me, but also was just a reality of the, of the job where I didn't need to, where it was, I just kind of did my wine thing. And, um, I knew the food well enough to pair with it, but I, you know, if someone was like, Oh, Hey, is there garlic in this dish? I have an allergy. I'd be like, well, let me ask someone for you. Cause I really don't know. Whereas in Attica, uh, you know, I felt like all of those things were much more like top of mind and, and really, um, really sort of felt like I could do most jobs at that restaurant. Yeah, a little bit more of a holistic. I definitely felt that too when I came back from Canada, that there was a holistic kind of vibe to everyone that kind of was in the in the building of kind of having their kind of talents, specific talents, but then also just uh, being all round individuals that kind of all got stuck in as well. So I want to talk about um, Australian wine imports company Legend because it's really exciting. Uh, You must have been impressed by the Australian wine scene to co-found this import company. So what were were your first impressions when you first moved to Australia about the the Australian wine scene? And then I also want to talk about how how do you translate that back to the States? How do you choose the wines that are going to resonate with, with the drinkers there? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we, when we lived and worked in New York, we were pretty Euro Eurocentric in our wine and our wine tastes. And that's what we primarily sold and drank. And, um, you know, so as, as much as we were really looking forward to move to Australia and getting to explore the wine regions firsthand, I don't think either of us imagined that like Australian wine would become the wine that we like, wanted to drink more than anything else. <laughs> um, and it really did. And that blew us away. And we just felt like, man, this is such a shame that the U S is missing out on this. Cause 10, the statistic is that 10% of Australian wineries export to the U S. So you're looking at this very small fraction of, of what's actually going on in Australia, making its way to the U S. And so we felt like, you know, we're, we're really well placed here because we have the experience being buyers in the U S we have sort of an American trained palette, if you will. Um, we know what people will like, but then we also have this intimate knowledge and relationships on the ground in Australia. So we felt like, you know, this, this is a good niche and, and let's try to, let's try to make this happen. So yeah, we started uh, legend in 2020 when we returned to the U S and, um, we have to explain to people, to Americans, the significance of the word legend in Australia. <laughs> and we, you know, we kind of explain it as it's like very everyday kind of term of endearment where someone, you know, gets you a coffee and you're like, ah, oh, thanks legend. Someone holds the door open for you. You're like, ah, oh, you're a legend like this. You know, that was John and I both, when we got to Australia, we were like, 
do people call you a legend? It's really strange. (laughs) (laughs) It's not until somebody points out how much you use something like that until you realize that you do. So um, when I read that on your your website, I thought, yeah, I say it a lot. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so lovely. It's so endearing. And so, you know, and of course it has the dual meaning of like, we also think all of our producers are like, you know, legendary too as, as winemakers and, um, yeah, so you know what, we really approached putting together the portfolio. We, going back to sort of our conversation earlier, we both really trust our palates and we know, you know, we really trust that when we taste good wine and we learn about wineries, we know, we know what's, you know, we know what's real. We also know what will resonate with the American buyer and consumer. Um, so, you know, I think some of the wineries we're representing are certainly very well established, very popular in Australia, and then others aren't, you know, and they're just ones that we really gravitated t- towards and we really believe in and we know what, that will resonate with people in the U.S. So we're, um, you know, I think we really wanted to push the idea of regionality is hugely important in our portfolio because I think, you know, um, Americans don't know much about <laughs> about the different wine regions of Australia. I say that as a, you know, five years ago as that person who, even though I was well studied and had, you know, passed, passed all the exams and stuff like that, I felt like when I moved to Australia, I realized I didn't really know much. And, and so, you know, much in the way I think um, we talk a lot about, you know, Spain in the U.S. 15 years ago, people knew about Rioja and Ribeiro do Duero and Priorat and, you know, and Jerez and, you know, kind of the big names. But people weren't talking about Ribera Sacra, Mentrida and places like this that now people are talking about. People do understand and they know about and they have their own sections on wine lists and then distribution portfolios. And we just saw that opportunity for Australia of like, you know, people talk about Australian wine. They don't talk about Beechworth wine and orange wine and, you know, Swan Valley wine. And just to really um, impress upon people that there's these very specific wine regions that have their kind of unique terroir, just, just as the same as all these great wine regions we study in Europe. Um, you know, that's sort of been a goal with putting together the portfolio too. So we can really have the conversations about, you know, about what's going on in Gippsland and Rattenbully and Beechworth and, um, you know, all these great regions that, you know, a lot of people in the U.S., even if they're pretty studied, have never had the opportunity to taste a wine from because they're just not available. Yeah. Yeah, so very true. And I think um, it's interesting looking at the portfolio because I kind of was looking through and I was thinking, oh, these are really interesting choices. And I was like, I know that you and John would have had quite a rigorous conversation about each one of these producers if you were adding them to them, why they were there and what what, what they were doing and who who the market would be. So I was like, this is really interesting because I know that you would have had a lot of foresight about you know, what you were going to pick and, and, and who you were going to sell it to. So really interesting to look and some really nice small guys that makes me, my heart sing when I see some of the really tiny guys that are represented. I'm like, this is fantastic. I love it. Yeah. It's wonderful. And, you know, honestly, the, the U S has something called the three tier system, which basically means you have sort of your importer level, your distributor level, and then your, 
retailer restaurant level. And there are importers who are distributors as well. Um, but a lot of importers then work with different distributors in each state. Um, so it has actually allowed a lot of flexibility in terms of the size of the um, the producer we take on because, you know, yeah, there's some producers who are like, um, I can give you 20 dozen this year. And we're like, okay, we'll take it, you know? Um, and you know, we'll just put those wines in, in one market. You know, we've even had like exclusive retailer, one retailer exclusive for the entire country for, for certain wines. And but then, you know, if we have producers that we do have more volume on, then we can say, okay, great. We can send these to, you know, all 15 of the markets we're in. And, and so that flexibility has been really nice because we, you know, it's, I think there's the realities of the business that we can't, um, we can't make a living selling, <laughs> selling a bunch of different producers who send us 20, 20 dozen uh, <laughs> uh, wines a year, but, or 20 cases of wine a year, but, um, you know, it's those producers that are so interesting and intriguing for people that like, you know, it's just so special to be able to, you know, think like, you know, there's some wines that we have in our portfolio that 240 bottles were made and we we're getting, you know, we have a few cases of that in the U S and like, how cool is that, that this like super tiny production wine made its way across the world and people, who care are going to be able to drink it here. And so, yeah, we're, we've tried to find that balance and, um, uh, you know, we feel like it's very important to have both. I mean, I have no doubt that you've got lots of people that you will find to sell those wine to that are really going to care, very well connected, but, you know, finding those songs that are going to be so thrilled that they were able to get their hands on a bottle, which is really lovely. Yeah. No, it's been really cool to see, you know, I think once people give us a chance and you know certainly our backgrounds I think help us get a foot in the door and when people sit down with an open mind and they taste the wines most people have just been blown away and they just have been like wow I didn't know Australia was doing this and these are you know incredibly impressive wines and so um yeah it's been it's always really I think that's my favorite part about this job so far is when we have those sorts of meetings with people who are just like totally on board, totally get it, really excited and want to help us push Australia as a category because it's been really, um, it's been under underexposed, underestimated in the US. And, and so, you know, we're just trying to help spread the gospel. Well, I think you're doing a fantastic job and uh, I, yeah, that's, I think, wonderful. But what I'm really also impressed about is, um, the, uh, the, I suppose they're your major kind of mission statements that you talk about in um, your import company, and that is of equity, inclusion, sustainability, and joy, um, and also your one-year accountability report. It's so clear that you were running a business, both you and John, that is honourable and moral and accountable, and uh, I, I really encourage anybody to jump on their website and have a little look at um, the way that they have the consideration that you've put into uh, what you do, how, how it affects people, how you um, develop the community that you're in. It's um, it really is um, something to be commended for. And uh, yeah, cheers to you for that. It's really wonderful to read. Love it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. You know, honestly, I think in large part, 
we have Australia to thank for that in a sense, because I think living in Australia sort of opened our eyes to some of the injustices in the US um, and not that Australia is perfect in all respects, but, you know, certainly in terms of, um, you know, workers, especially agricultural workers, getting a, a, a livable wage and getting health care and, you know, stuff like that. I think, you know, I think growing up in the U.S., you're sort of even even though my family was very progressive, I think you're sort of inundated with this really aggressive <laughs> capitalism that like you just you're sort of um, indoctrinated to feel like there's it doesn't work any other way. And so being in um, being in Australia, we're kind of like, oh, it actually does work another way. And so when we came back here, it was kind of like, well, you know, we don't we don't want to own a business that's not, that's just to own a business. You know, it's like there's one of the goals is certainly to promote Australian wine in the U.S., but then, you know, we want a business that also promotes um, you know, promotes these values of, of equity and inclusion. And, um, and that was really important to us. So, so yeah, we're, you know, it's, it's not an easy road, but it's, it's absolutely a hundred percent worthwhile. Um, and I would encourage anyone who wants to, you know, learn more about sort of, um, this, you know, doing this sort of work in their own lives or in their businesses to, um, yeah, feel free to reach out to us. There's uh, an organization we're a part of called the Wine uh, uh, Wine Industry Justice and Equity Pledge um, that I think is really good for people starting down this path. And the website for that is winepledge.com. And then we've also learned a lot and we're starting that application to be a B Corp, a B Corporation. So, and their website is incredible in terms of just like giving you ideas of how you can do this. Cause I think a lot of people ourselves included are like, we want to do better. We want to make the world a better place, but where do we start and what do we do? And I think, um, so I think those are two really good resources. If, if anyone listening to this is sort of having, having those thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And you've always been huge in education, um, yourselves, but also in furthering other people's education. And I noticed that on the website does talk a little bit about the doors are always open and that you can reach out. There's emails there for both you and John. And I think that that's one of the things that surprised me the most about the both of you is that you've always been incredibly open, um, happy to have a conversation with anyone. And you do put yourself out there quite a bit, which is, um, which is interesting. And that brings me to wanting to discuss a little bit about two books. First of all, Vignette, um, uh, that was an incredible book. Um, and on release, I was really surprised by how, how much of a personal account that was. Um, and you know, I, I have a million questions about lots of different wines, but really they need to just buy a book and read about, uh, uh, your wonderful stories about, life and wine in a hundred bottles so they can get that anytime. But um, yeah, how, how was that putting that out into the world and having such a personal account um, out there? Um, it was interesting. You know, I, 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 it's funny. I don't describe myself. I, I don't feel like I'm a private person. Clearly I, you know, put a lot of personal information out there in this book, but I also don't, honestly ever assume that people care about like my private life. So it's like, that's sort of what keeps me from, <laughs> keeps me from sharing. But when you write a book, you don't really have to, you know, care if people care, if they care, they'll read the book. If they don't, they won't. So it's not, uh, it's not quite the same as like having, 
that conversation with someone in person. So I guess I found it easier to write it than I would like having that conversation with um, with someone and like sitting down and just like telling people those things. But it is weird. Like, you know, when I met people, when I meet people who've read the book, I'm just like, wow, you know so much about me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just felt like, I felt like my contribution to the wine world was not going to be, at least for that first book was not going to be just purely wine knowledge. You know, I was, I didn't feel like I had enough specialized knowledge for that to be my contribution. And, and I felt like my contribution was my story um, and sort of coming of age in this industry and, and, and dealing with health problems and anxiety and romance problems. And um, I thought that that could be useful for, for people, um, maybe less the romance problems and more the others, but uh, it's all part of the story. And, and then that also like the, you know, the educational content, I wanted to make it accessible and fun, kind of a, a, a different lens to look at wine. And it was always that balance of like, not wanting to dumb it down, but wanting to, wanting people to, to engage with it in a new way. And I think, you know, it was always, I looked at sort of the educational content for each chapter and felt like I look, try to look at it through the lens of, of an expert, someone, you know, like yourself reading the book. And would you find this an engaging way, you know, an interesting way, maybe a way you hadn't thought about to, to think about this information. And then I thought about a novice. I thought about like, my sister reading the book and um, is, will this engage her? Will this get her interested in this style of wine and kind of, um, you know, give her a few things that uh, she can kind of take away and understand about the style of wine. Um, so I felt like those were my two things to offer, kind of my story and my different way of looking at wine. And so that's what I wanted to, to make the book about. And, and, you know, and there was actually a fair amount of pushback and sort of when I was originally starting to pitch this idea to, to agents and publishers in the U.S., people thought it was too busy. They thought it was too, uh, yeah, too much going on. It should either be the memoir or it should be the wine information. You can't do both. And I just felt like to me it was it was about both and it was about how wine education had really like – made an impact on my life in terms of um, of getting me through hard times and had helped me be present in my life and um, had been sort of wine had been benchmarks in, in my life. So for me, the 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 wine education was inseparable from from my story. Um, and eventually I found a publisher in Australia who uh, wanted to give it a go. <laughs> I, I think that that's exactly what it does really well. I think that it there's a hum, human side to it. There's also all the, the passion and the kind of the tingly feelings you get from great wine. But I also think that, you know, a lot of people like myself could see themselves. It was relatable of those times where you didn't think, think, think you were enough and you were never going to get to that point. And then you just kind of faked it for a little bit. And then you, you learned more and you did your research and you, you know, the next time you stood up in front of those people, damn it, you're going to know what you're saying. And all of those components in it really made it so relatable and um, 
I really love that about it. So I think, um, I think good on you for sticking to your guns because it was a pleasurable read, but it also, um, I think Nelly on everyone that can read it, if they're involved in wine, could see a little bit of something in, in that as well of themselves. Yeah. I think, you know, I think our industry is not an easy one and, um, I think we all like to make it look like in any industry, I think like to make things look like pretty and happy and uh, always great on Instagram or wherever. And I think that, um, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out to me on, you know, social media or through email or wherever and just say that it meant a lot to them to feel like, you know, that, yeah, there's other people are having a hard time in this and, and, you know, it's, it's normal. Um, and so that, you know, even if I had gotten one of those messages ever, it would have been worth it because I think that's, um, you know, an important takeaway from the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you haven't shied away from having the spotlight on you, especially when it comes to things like um, Esquire's series, which the Uncork series. Uh, what was that like when people then knew your face? I mean, people you'd never seen that watched that all over the world. Was that a surreal experience being filmed in that in that series? Uh, yes, it was. I, I don't know if surreal is quite the right word. It was very stressful. <laughs> um, you know, ultimately I said yes, because if I had said no, there wouldn't have been a woman doing it. And I felt like there can't be another representation of the wine world that doesn't have a woman in it. Um, and, you know, I think part of me, because I was very much dealing with pretty severe anxiety at the time. And so I feel, felt like part of me felt like, um, there's a therapy for anxiety called exposure therapy. Like, you know, if you're really afraid of heights, the idea is like you sort of, you know, you introduce yourself to heights until you sort of get used to it. <laughs> so I, I think in a way I kind of felt like this was my exposure therapy. And if I just put myself in the absolute most stressful position, like I would be stressed doing exams and competitions if I didn't have a camera on me. But now let's add some more real serious stress to it. And, you know, maybe that'll just help me get over it. Um, it didn't quite <laughs> work that way. Um, but, you know, it's, it's fine. It's like the sort of things that you think are the end of the world at the at the moment, turn out to be not. Um, and, you know, it was, I think it was liberating in a sense, because I think it was sort of a preamble to, to my book in terms of sharing my story with people and letting the idea that I don't have to hide something anymore be, be somewhat freeing. You know, I think anxiety sort of perpetuates itself when um, you're also trying to hide it. And I think that was like, you know, I was, I didn't want to shake when I was pouring wine and it was not, necessarily only because I, you know, was worried about not doing a good job it was also because I didn't want people to know that I had anxiety. And so when it was really out there and there's this like brutal scene that I will never watch again in one of the episodes where I'm decanting, double decanting a bottle of wine and I'm just like viciously shaking and, you know, I didn't spill a drop of wine <laughs> <laughs> but it was terrible. It was like the longest, you know, 15 seconds of my life or however long it took. Um, 
but you know, after that, it was like, oh, well, that's out there. And like someone approached me afterwards and was like, hey, you know what? You should try beta blockers. They'll really help with the shaking. And I was like, why hasn't someone told me this earlier? And sure enough, it really did help with the shaking. And if that hadn't been out there in the world, I would have never gotten that piece of advice. You know, I think we're all like so scared of like letting people know what our problems are that we don't get help. And so, um, you know, it was, it was, so it was good and it was definitely good in some ways. And, um, but I, I, after that I needed, I needed a bit of a break from the competitions, the exams and, and all of that. And just sort of, um, you know, focus on my job and, and focus on writing. I kind of started writing the book right after the show filmed and, um, and, yeah, so it was, you know, it kind of led me to a few positive things in my life, but it also, um, it also burned me out a bit, for sure. I think it's an interesting world. I've said to myself a few times and to other Psalms, like, there's nothing wrong with just going to work and doing a great bloody job at your job. And that's it. You know, like there's so often in this world where we've got so many other things going on, whether it be exams or all this side hustle that we do and, and you're just you know, just killing yourself, trying to achieve all these goals. And sometimes I was like, how about just go to work and do a great job and leave it at that. Then have your weekend. Like what is wrong with that? <laughs> and I was honestly, I was having so much fun at 11 Madison park. And that was, I, I took, I started filming for that right before I started at 11 Madison park and kind of was filming kind of through my first five months or so there. And I was when the TV show was over, when the MS exam in 2015 was over and I could just be like, I just want to, yeah, I just want to go to my job and like have fun and work hard. And I don't want to, I want to sleep till 11 AM the next day. And I want to, you know, John was, he didn't take a year. He didn't take any time off after we both sat in 2015 together and we both failed and he didn't take any time off. And, you know, he would just, He'd work till 2 a.m. and he'd go home, go to sleep, get up at 8 a.m. and study. And I was just like, man, that is absolutely not how I want to be spent, like spending this time. And, and I just want to be enjoying this moment where I'm working at this, you know, amazing restaurant. And and I'm so I'm so glad I did because I feel like it would have been a lot less fun period in my life if I was also putting that kind of pressure on myself. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting to be in uh, a relationship with two Psalms. I mean, uh, you would know about that. I would never know about that. But I think um, it's so good to know you're both individuals. You're both different humans that do things differently. They don't have to be the same. So I'm I'm glad that you took a little bit of a break. And look, to be honest, I think the thing that a lot of people took away from that series was really just how, you know, hard you guys all worked and how passionate you were and how much you pushed yourself to your end degree. I think that's what people took away from it, really not the end result of of kind of how it finished up. And then from what I can see, you know, all of those some series of was it shot, shone a light on an industry that a lot of people didn't see. And, and, and people ask about it because they're enamored and they're amazed at, at just how in-depth it is. And I think that that is the overarching um, message that all of those kind of um, series and uh, and movies really have that that's what they've done I think for the world in in my opinion but um, yeah for sure and it's good because I think 
you know, it's easy to think wine professionals are just like drinking wine all day and living the good life. And it's just this like really breezy, easy profession. So I think it's, it is good to sort of sort of shine a light on the difficulty on the professionalism. Um, you know, not that like we should all be destroying ourselves. Cause I think that, that uh, I would not recommend to anyone, but I think it's good. It's, I think you're right. I think it kind of was good for people to see that this is a really, you know, this is a really serious serious profession that requires you know every bit the the dedication and the study that um that you know so many other professions do yeah absolutely tell us a little bit about how to drink australian how to drink australian so um you know we we really saw an opportunity for us to champion wine in the United States, but really internationally and in Australia as well, um, from sort of our perspective of outsiders in a sense, you know, I think we, we lived in, we lived in Australia for three years. So clearly we had, we got sort of this crash course in Australian wine, but we, I think it was really beneficial to us to have the outsider's perspective because a, you know, we kind of knew the information that, American and international wine professionals would kind of be clamoring for. And we also had sort of that outsider's enthusiasm. You know, I think sometimes, and we felt this way about American wine when we lived here and have since sort of re-examined that attitude. But we, you know, I think sometimes when it's your home turf, you're not as, um, I guess, excited about it, but also like willing to like, really wave the flag for it. And I, I think it also is something to do with sort of a, a cultural, um, uh, I guess a cultural situation of Australians is that y'all are really like humble. <laughs> and I think that's really lovely, but it doesn't, you know, I think it doesn't always lend itself to, um, to selling fine wine, you know, it's people, uh, if Americans are listening to this, there's something in Australia called the tall poppy syndrome, which is sort of this idea that like, you know, you never want to get too big for your britches and you, you know, and, and if, you know, you kind of get to that place, people are going to cut you down. And, um, you know, again, I think it's like, it's a good thing a lot of the time, but I think, you know, we were interviewing one winemaker who is who had worked in Napa and he was saying, you know, in Napa, people stand up on the table and say, this is my Cabernet and it's $500 a bottle and it's the best Cabernet you're ever going to drink. And everyone's like, where can I get some? And you say that in Australia and people are like, you're a wanker, sit down, get off it, you know? <laughs> um, so we felt like we're in a good position, like, you know, we have these like credentials. We've worked at these restaurants. We have, you know, people can believe us. And we're going to say Australia is the absolute most exciting wine country in the world right now, hands down. And these are the things that you should know. These are the producers. These are the wines you should know. These are the stories. These, this is what's going on. This is what's important to people. This is what people are worried about. You know, really try to give um, give people what they want to really get that insight. So, um, and it's, it's, 
myself, John and Kavita Faella are the three authors. So we felt like, you know, we're get, we're tackling it from both sides. We've got, um, you know, sort of the insiders and the outsiders perspective. Um, and I think, you know, because we also, we don't consider ourselves the foremost experts on Australian wine, you know, we're certainly all the time studying and consuming that information, but we didn't grow up with it. So, um, it also, I think, made us really feel like, okay, we have to do, we have to do our research. We have to talk to as many people as possible. We have to double, triple check things. Um, and for that reason, I, I hope, I feel like the book is going to be, um, be really special. We have a lot of, we did probably about a hundred interviews. We have a lot of amazing perspective. And I think it really, um, I hope it gives everyone sort of, that excitement that we had stepping into Australia and just being like, wow, this is a world that we didn't know and we can't wait to get to know it better. I mean, I have that just from listening to you talk about that. And I am Australian and I completely believe we have some of the best wine in the whole world, but it is so exciting to hear you say that. And it's so exciting to have somebody else out there shouting that from the rooftops. Um, I cannot wait till it's released. I literally have goosebumps just thinking about it. I'm so thrilled that you guys have done that. Um, it really, you know, I know that, you know, it's going to make so many producers really, really incredibly proud. So well done for you um, completing that. And I cannot wait to see it. When is it released? Um, it will release March of next year. So we're still about a year out. We're in sort of the thick of the editorial process right now. Um, you know, it's, uh, it definitely was a more <laughs> difficult process than Vignette. Cause I think, you know, Vignette, yes, there was some wine information, but a lot of it was my story and even the wine information was mostly from, from my head. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as much a research and fact check and, you know, laying everything out to make the information the most kind of readable and accessible and dealing with maps and photographs and climate charts and GI charts. And there's just a million moving parts and it's very exciting, but it, we have ended up sort of, taking a bit longer with the process than we originally wanted. But yeah, March, March of 2023 is now um, the, the likely release date. Oh, well, we will be crossing our fingers and toes waiting for that to go by swiftly. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, I could speak to you all day, so I, try, I will try and wrap it up for you. Um, I'm a big believer in that your reputation as an industry professional is developed over time and epitomized by working relationships and then what you leave behind you. But I'm really curious after all your experiences in the wine industry so far what do you think makes a great wine industry professional um that's a great question you know i think if i was gonna kind of i think one word that comes to mind is hospitality um i think you know and i, I think that should manifest itself in in every one of our relationships so it's not just the hospitality you show a guest in a restaurant, but it's also the hospitality you show to the people working on the floor with you, you know, all, you know, all your coworkers in a restaurant, it's the hospitality you show to your distributors who you work with, um, certainly to kind of winemakers. If you're going to travel, I think it's, um, I think, I think there is a fair amount of gatekeeping in this industry. Um, and, you know, I think the best wine professionals are those who are just 
really open-minded, really, um, you know, it's not about ego. It's about creating a great experience for the people around them, whether that's the people in their wine shop or restaurant or the people they sell to or the people they buy from. It's, it's about being curious, open-minded and hospitable um, would be kind of the, what to me makes a great wine professional. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. At the end of the day, you can't really forget what it's all about, right? And I think hospitality is, is, is a great word for that. Um, so let's fast forward, so let's say, I don't know, 30 years. What would you like to be remembered for? What impact do you want to have in the world of wine? Ooh, tough one, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, definitely being open and vulnerable. I think, um, evolving would be an important one. You know, I think, um, there are definitely things in my past where I felt like I haven't handled well and I want to handle better in the future. And I, and I want to always be, um, be evolving. I want, you know, I want our industry to be a better, safer place for everyone. And I don't think it always has, especially for, um, you know, women and people of color. So I would like to, to hope that my involvement in the industry, even in a very small way, could one day help make that a better place for everyone. Um, and yeah, you know, and I guess I would say like, I want, you know, I would hope that in 30 years, people look back and say that we helped, helped lead sort of a Australian wine renaissance in the US. Um, because those movements have happened for other regions. And it's, you know, Australia had previous heydays in the US. And there are a number of importers already on the ground here who have been doing the work and we just want to contribute to what they've been doing and build more momentum. And so, yeah, if in 30 years people look back and say, wow, legend really kind of, um, you know, helped to help turn the tide and really, um, get people on board for Australian wine and make it a much bigger category. Like that would, um, you know, that would be huge. Beautifully said Jane. And I think, uh, you're well on your way to doing that. So yeah, love, just lovely, lovely to hear you say that. Um, okay. So final question, Jane, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Three beverages. Um, I won't, I feel like it would be a little bit cheating to just say wine is one of them. So I will be more specific than that. Um, I do want to make sure I get a cocktail in there though. Um, I probably would say a Manhattan. It's kind of my go-to. Um, I feel like I'm happy with it before or after dinner I can kind of do a Manhattan whenever, anytime. So I'm going to say a Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then if I was kind of going to say, so I'll, I'll say, um, ever so slightly off dry Riesling. <laughs> 
<laughs> like a fine herb style or like, you know, just like a, something that is chalkin, but just has a little bit of residual sugar. Um, you know, I think there are beautiful examples being made everywhere, you know, certainly Germany and Alsace, uh, less so Austria, pretty dry there, but a little bit, um, and, and definitely some in Australia. So I would go, that's kind of one of my favorite, um, wine styles. Um, and then I might go... Aussie Grenache. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> you know, I have to do something Australian, clearly. Um, and I, it, I'm just like, it's a style I was like blown away by because I had always loved Grenache, but you, I felt like I always had to be real careful what Grenaches I was picking up because, you know, I didn't want a bready Grenache. I didn't want a oaky Grenache. I didn't want... Um, you know, you get some of those like pre-rock Grenaches that are like real inky and tannic. And, um, I didn't want that either. So it was like, I really liked that, like high tone perfume, transparent red fruited style, but it was sort of like few and far between. And then I moved to Australia and I was like, oh wow, most Australian, or excuse me, Grenache is made like this. And I just like fell in love with the style. Um, and yeah, I'd be very sad if I couldn't drink Australian Grenache. So I think those would be my, those will be my three and I will miss out on plenty, but, um, I would be, I think pretty happy with, with being able to drink those three for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And I think Grenache, I mean, I agree. And, and it's so exciting in Australia right now. There's so many beautiful, pure, ethereal, yeah, got great old vines and they're just, yep. So I, yep, yep, yep. I agree with all of those things. I love it. <laughs> Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I have to say, I was really sad to hear that you and John were leaving Australia, but I'm so glad that you're still very much connected to us. I hope that you keep in touch and hopefully next time it will be over a glass or something delicious. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Shante. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.